Good evening. We're glad you're all here. Uh, welcome to Cross Point's Midweek Fellowship. Tonight we will open with Acts chapter 2, verses 32 and 33. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to seek you out in your word. I pray for understanding in this text, and I thank you for the opportunity to gather here. All these things we ask in your son's name, amen. Uh, Will just asked me to announce that young adults are going to Sweet Frog right after this, so young adults, go to Sweet Frog. Yeah, I noticed Will didn't ask me to make that announcement. We talked about that, Will. Like I knew this time I was going to get it right. He was afraid that I was going to get up and say something like, hey, Will made a change to the young adult schedule. I don't think they're doing it anymore. I don't know. Talk to him. <clears throat> I'll never make that mistake again. All right. Uh, tonight we're going to be dealing with a not so much a difficult text, as, or a difficult saying in particular, as it is a really just a difficult theme, a difficult concept that we find woven throughout the Old Testament, especially um, just the historical books. So Joshua, um, Samuel, Chronicles, those, those sort of books. You, you run into this theme constantly, and it's the idea that God wants his people to wipe out uh, uh, all their enemies, to, to totally obliterate the people who are opposed to them, right? Some people um, maybe even raise an objection to, to Christianity or to the gospel, to the Bible in particular, by saying, you know, well, the God of the Bible is the God who, or, who ordains and sanctions genocide, right? Maybe you've heard that or you've seen that uh, on Facebook or in, in uh, apologetics books. It's a common objection that people raise towards the Bible, that they raise towards the God of the Bible and then that they raise towards the gospel and Christianity. So we're going to address that in particular tonight. And I have a few texts that I want us to look at more closely. Um, but before we get into those texts in particular, I'd just like to throw out a few, I don't know, presuppositions that we really need to hold on to if we're going to address this um, topic well, if we're going to do it faithfully. So the, the first, uh, and really all of this kind of falls under, under one heading, um, is we have to consider who mankind in general is when compared to God. Um, that, that's the most important thing for us to walk into this discussion with, is a right understanding of who we are in, in relationship to God in our natural state of being. Uh, and I'm not going to give you a whole lot of scriptural support for this. I, I think you'll see that it, it's pretty standard throughout the Bible. And, and as we get further, we will talk more in depth about these things. But I just want to make sure that when we walk into some of these difficult texts, that you have a good idea or that, that you're coming at it with the right frame of mind. So, so the first idea here is that God is holy. That, that's the first thing. Maybe we can put that up on the screen if you guys have it back there. Um, the first idea is that God is holy. So that, that's, that's an idea we find throughout the Bible, right? And, and, and when we talk about Leviticus especially, that's a major theme of that book. Be holy because... I am holy. This is something God says again and again and again. But it, it begins with the fact, that this, this truth, 
that God is holy. Right? He's the great I am. He is other. He's unlike any other God or deity that mankind has come up with. He's unlike his creation from people to the creatures he's made to the universe, the planets, the stars, all of it. He is other. He's outside of all those things. And he's preeminent in holiness. He's glorious. He's supremely worthy of our worship, our admiration. Um, I guess the second point then that, that correlates with that is that we are not. So God's holy, we are not. Those are really important things to grasp before we go any further. And, and hopefully you, you, you already understand this idea that we're not holy. Uh, I think we, we know this if you've read the Bible. We know that when we talk about God being holy um, and, and we talk about our own holiness, we know they're not the same thing. Uh, we know that our, our righteousness is as filthy rags. Even, even for those of us who, who think that we honor and worship God the right way, even then, we are still fallen creatures. This has been true from Genesis 3 on. So those, those two principles are at work here. God is holy, we are not. But then, thirdly, we have to wrestle with how those two principles interact. How those two things um, work themselves out in, in the story of God's people, in the story of the, the history of, of the human race. This, this holiness of God and, and not holiness of man. Well, so we know two other things about God that can help us to navigate that. One is that God is just. So we know that the Lord will do what, what best suits his character, that the Lord will adhere to his law, the Lord will do things that, that correlate to who he is, the essential aspects of his nature. Um, God is not going to oppose himself. And, and he won't let his creation oppose him either. But not only is God just, he's also merciful. Uh, see, the justice of God requires punishment for sin. The justice of God requires, um, requires wrath for all who are opposed to him for all who are not holy as he is holy. So you see, you see the problem, right? Which is that, <laughs> that if we are not holy and God is holy and God is justly offended by our unholiness and, and must punish it accordingly with justice, we, we, ha we should all, all of us, every, every human person, every culture, every nation, the whole world, the whole population of humanity from creation till now should be wiped out. That, that, is, that is the reality that we're in. Uh, is that because we're opposed to God, we should be destroyed. But, but like I've said, God is also merciful. And, and we'll look at exactly how that plays out for his people. But it's important for us to remember that God is merciful. That if we haven't received justice due to us yet, it's because he's patient. That, that if the peoples of the earth have not been duly punished for their unholiness and their uh, appro you know, reproach of God, if they haven't been punished for that, th there's got to be an explanation. And so maybe God is patient, or maybe in Christ, God has done something to provide a way out. In his mercy, he's given his people safety from the impending destruction of that is coming their way, apart from Jesus. So those, those are just the, the key presuppositions that we need to have as we walk into this text. 
And, and I think it's fitting then that we look at an example of God's mercy. And when, when we talk about God's mercy, I realize that that may be a bit of a jargony sort of term for you. Um, but I just want to be clear. When we talk about God's mercy, we're talking about God acting and, and doing things that, um, that, that, that coincide with his character, being loving, but that, that seem to circumvent his justice. Or, or rather, they, they provide a, a way of escape for those who are justly condemned. So God, when he shows his mercy, he does something undeserved, unexpected. It, it fits with his justice, as we'll see. Uh, but, but the reality is that it, it's, it's not us that have to pay the price. Someone else has absorbed that cost when God chooses to be merciful. Uh, and, and as you might guess, it's, it's God himself who, who finds a way to pay the price. So one of the, the first examples we have in the Bible of God's mercy towards people who do not deserve it of God's mercy towards people who deserve judgment and destruction comes in the form of, of, of Abraham and the person of Abraham and his line, his descendants. God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12. He reiterates it in Genesis 15. And then he seals it again with uh, circumcision in Genesis 17. And each time, he clearly reveals exactly what his plan is, what his relationship with Abraham will be. But Abraham, if, you, if, you, if you're not familiar, if you don't remember, Abraham is a pagan. Abraham does not worship the one true God, and then that God finally talks to him and kind of reveals himself to him. No, Abraham is, is the son of a pagan. He, he is uh, no more uh, God-worshipping than any Canaanite in the land. He's got his gods, he's got his idols, he's got his sacrificial system, whatever that may have looked like, that he inherited from his forefathers. That's who Abraham was. But God, in his mercy, chooses to come to Abraham, and he speaks to him. And he reveals some things to him. If you'll turn with me to Genesis chapter 12, uh, I just want to clarify exactly what this covenant with Abraham looks like. Because it, it's really foundational um, for, for the rest of uh, our discussion here. So Genesis 12. <clears throat> if you look at uh, verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to flip a little bit more, uh, but I'll let you know where we're going. So Genesis 12, one, ver uh, verses 1 through 3 says, The Lord said to Abram, that was his name then, right? Go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that those or so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God comes to Abraham and he gives him this incredible promise. Uh, and, and among the things that God promises to him um, are, are a, a vast family which we know would be more numerous than the stars, um, that God will make him a great nation, a great people. Abraham is one man right now. Not only that, but he's, he's leaving his people. God's asking him to leave his nation. 
and, and set out on something completely new. But among the promises that God gives Abram are that he will start, he will found a brand new nation, one set apart for the Lord. I will bless those who bless you. Those who dishonor you, I will curse. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. This promise given to Abraham isn't just, it doesn't just have to do with him either. But it, it impacts all those who relate to Abraham. And so you saw it. If you're a friend of Abraham's, um, you'll, be, you'll be blessed by the Lord. You'll be regarded favorably. If you're one of Abram's enemies, you'll, the Lord will consider you one of his enemies. And then ultimately, in verse 3, we see that the, the trajectory of God's covenant with Abram is that all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth, will be blessed. So there's, there's a lot going on there, but it starts to help us to understand God's dealings with the nations. God's dealings with people who are opposed to his people. Um, the way that God interacts with those who are not a part of this covenant setup. So let's keep going, because God reiterates this promise um, in Genesis 15, uh, verse 7. Um, He says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So now we're getting really specific. Here Abram is, he's standing in the midst of the place, the very place, like a geographic location, that the Lord is telling him, this is yours. This land where you are standing, I've set apart for you and for all your descendants, for that nation that I've promised you, this is where it will grow. And it's from here, this is the epicenter of how I'm going to bless the world, all right? Then, uh, if we keep going to verses 13 through 21, we're still in chapter 15. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. And this is speaking as we find out about the Exodus or about their time in Egypt. Right? Um, But I will bring judgment, verse 14, on the nation that they serve and afterward... They shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall, go out, uh, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. They shall come back here in the fourth generation. Back here where? The, the promised land. The place that God's promised Abram, his people will inherit. They will come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, that's an odd thing for God to mention. But it, it's really helpful for us when, when we think about exactly what this would come to mean. God is saying to Abram, I'm not going to bring your people here yet. And and wouldn't you you know it, this land is already populated with people, the Amorites. But the, the reason why the Lord is not cashing in this promise right now is because in his mercy and his patience, he's decided, he's determined to allow the sins of the Amorites to grow to the tipping point, right? All, all the peoples of the earth are wicked. They're all in opposition to him. But the Lord has chosen one man to start one family, one nation that the Lord will call blessed, and that through them the world will be called blessed. And so in the midst of it, the Lord is waiting on this nation, the Amorites and others like them, 
to, to grow to the point of their, their national sin and uh, their sinfulness so, so that the Lord can just wipe them out, move them out of the picture, and bring his chosen people in. It's not because Abram is greater than the Amorites. It's not because his people will be somehow more moral than the Amorites. It's because the Amorites will have become so wicked and the, the stench of their offense to God will have risen so high that, that the Lord will just simply judge them then and there and wipe them out. It, it keeps going, When the sun had gone down, it was dark, and behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces, um, because Abraham had cut uh, pieces of animals in two. This is sort of a, a ritual um, that people would do in this time. And so on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now, uh, those are a lot, that's word soup, right? I mean, what, what did the, who are these people, right? There's a reason they don't exist anymore. They couldn't, no one even knows how to say their names. Okay, but when we get further on, these names are going to come back up. They're going to sound really familiar. And, and you're going to realize that there, there's, a, there's a connection here um, between God's promises to Abram for a land and, and sort of evicting all these wicked residents and, and, and then later on when we actually see it come to, come to pass. So God has a covenant with Abraham, and the covenant, it, it promises a few things, and, and I think it's really helpful to summarize it in three ways. One, God promises a people. He promises Abram, you will become a mighty nation, a, a big family. You will populate uh, my kingdom. You will be a people. God promises a place. Uh, the, the slide says place says, not places, a one place. It's important we be clear about that. God has, has ordained one set place for his people according to this covenant. And then not only that, but God promises to be with him. One of the things that God reiterates to Abraham is that I'll be your God, and you will be my people. I'll dwell with you and among your people. This has always been the hope that God's people have, that, that the Lord would dwell with them. It's our hope today. So God promises three things, a people, a place, and his presence with them. And, and all of that is important then for, for where we are going next. Um, God, uh, one, among the things that, that he, among the things I guess that it means to be chosen by God as God's chosen people, yeah, all these things we've mentioned about Abraham. But then on top of that, in addition to that, or I guess maybe a part of that, I mean inseparably attached to that, is that God's people would be holy. Right? Because remember our problem? Right? God is, is holy, and we are not. So it doesn't just go away because God chooses a people for himself. I mean, if anything, that, that should come as a shock to us, that God would choose unholy people to be his. Something has to be done to make this work, to make this fit. And it can't just simply be that, that God's chosen them. Now, what God says later in his law in Leviticus, if you look at Leviticus 19.1, he says, Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. This is the beginning of God's dealings with his people. This is the foundation for God's dealings with the Israelites when they leave Egypt. It's that God has, has set up a law. He set up a sacrificial system 
He's given them a means by which they can distinguish themselves from the other peoples of the earth and, and a way for them to worship God that isn't so tainted by fallen sinful man. But that comes straight from him. Now we know, right, looking back and knowing Jesus, we know that these things were, they're a shadow, right? Uh, we know that the blood of sheep and goats cannot cover sin. It cannot save. And, and, and really the Israelites probably had a sense of that too because they had to do this all the time. If this was sufficient, you know, to, to obey the law once or to sacrifice an animal one time, if that was enough, they would not have done it year in and year out. But they continued to have to do it because they continued to sin. They continued to be a people that, that really weren't holy like their God. But because God is merciful and just, he provided a way. He, he painted them a picture of, of what to expect from him, which is that he is the one who makes them holy. He's the one who sets them apart. And, and ultimately, um, he provides the, the final complete sacrifice that all these other sacrifices have been pointing to by faith. So God, um, he, he, he calls them to be holy. He, he tells them to be holy. And, that, and that's what separates them from the other nations. right? But, but we see, too, that God has set them apart for himself. Um, if you go to Leviticus 18, 24 through 30, We get a, an idea of, of what this means. 18, verses 24 through 30. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. And, and these things refers to a few things in the previous paragraph. By all these things, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. Um, that's quite a picture. God, thank you. Right? God is very clear here. Uh, the, the, the sin, right? Remember, the iniquity of the Amorites has gotten to such a point where even the land is vomiting. It cannot take it anymore. And, and so God says, don't be like them. That's the reason they are leaving this land. The reason I'm evicting them from this land and the reason you will go in and wipe them out of this land is, is because the land is vomiting them up because of their iniquity and unholiness and their offense before God. You shall keep my statutes, verse 26, and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations, that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. God's an equal opportunity vomiter. He, he, he does not regard these other nations as inferior in and of themselves, but rather because of their uncleanness, because of their iniquity, the Lord is, is sending them out. The Lord is bringing judgment on them. And, and the Lord is very clear to point out, and I'll do the same for you if you follow in their steps. Verse 29, As everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. And then if you look at Leviticus 20, verses 22 through 24, the Lord says, You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. You shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I'm driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. 
I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. So uh, part of this, this land promise has to do with God separating his people, distinguishing them from the peoples of the earth. And because of the nature of this covenant with Abram, that, that inevitably requires physical separation from the peoples around them. God actually promised them a land for them alone. And God wants them to be holy. And he does not want that to be infringed on in any way. And because of the nature of humanity, the Lord in his wisdom knows that, that these people, his people, the Israelites, if they stay with these neighbors who are lost in wickedness, if, if he allows them to commingle and, and operate together, or at least if, he, if the Israelites feel like maybe adopting some of their customs, maybe that's not a big deal. If it gets to that point, the Lord knows you will no longer be holy. You will no longer be distinct and different. So it, it's really imperative that the Israelites maintain the purity of their land. And given the nature of what God's calling them to do, that requires that they eradicate anyone opposed to God who dwells in the promised land. So, where, where does this take us? Well, if, if we keep going in the Old Testament, and we get to Deuteronomy, which is, which is really like the last hurrah, right? This is Moses giving his, his final sermon, if you will, to the people of Israel. You remember, Moses, he's not going to get to go into the promised land. Uh, because of some of his own unfaithfulness, he, he's going to have to stay behind. Uh, but before he sends the people in, remember they've been waiting in the wilderness for years and years and years, before he sends them in under the leadership of Joshua, Moses gives them a final reminder of all the things that God has told his people. Because it's imperative that they obey the Lord's law. It's imperative that they worship the Lord rightly if they're going to stay in the land that they're about to work their tails off to get into. Moses knows the cost that they've paid to get this far. And he's not about to let them mess it up by going willy-nilly with the word of God. He wants them to enter in and to obey faithfully all that the Lord says. And, and so he gives them some final instructions about how to deal with the inhabitants of the land. So if you turn to Deuteronomy 7, we're not going to read... Uh, we're not going to read all of it, just a few key sections. But this is where we really get into the, the, the meat of this question. How could God ordain something like genocide or something that we perceive that way? Uh, Deuteronomy 7, there are a few points, there are two points in particular, where the Lord tells the Israelites to, uh, quote, devote their enemies to destruction. Devote them to complete Destruction, and it, it serves, both of these references kind of serve as like a bookend to the whole chapter. So at the beginning, the Lord says, hey, devote them to complete destruction. And then at the end, he reminds them, devote them to complete destruction. So if you look again at Deuteronomy 7, verse 2, he says, When the Lord your God gives you over to them and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction and again in verse 26, you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. 
That phrase is important. The reason I'm emphasizing that is this is a common term that we find. I mean, anytime you find it in the Old Testament, virtually, it's referring to the same idea. And it's an idea that um, is not unlike sacrifice. Uh, it's, it's, it's not really unlike that. Remember, in the sacrificial system, what would happen? You Very often, right, you would take an animal, you'd kill it, but would you just leave it there to die? Would you just leave it there to bleed out? No, you, they would burn it. They would torch that thing. And, and the aroma would go up to the Lord as, as a pleasing aroma. God's asking the Israelites to essentially do the same thing. And, and, and instead of to sacrifice sheep or goats, he's telling them, you need to devote to destruction as objects of my wrath the people who are opposed to me the people who are opposed to my people. And, and so Moses gives them instructions here, and, and I'm not going to turn there, but if you go to Leviticus 27, it's very clear that things that are devoted to destruction, they're not meant to stick around. They're not meant to last. If something is devoted to destruction, it has to be destroyed. It can't be redeemed. It can't be exchanged. It can't be traded for something else. God made provisions for that sort of thing elsewhere in his law. But for this, things devoted to destruction... Uh-uh, there's no getting around it. They've got to be destroyed. So uh, we, um, we get this idea then from Deuteronomy 7 about devoting things to destruction. What, is that, what does that look like, though? If you, if you go to verses 1 through 5, the Lord, uh, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. When the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For why, why all of this? Is it because the Lord just hates them? Is it because the Lord sees them as an inferior race of people? No. He says, they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. The anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. You see that? Burning with fire. The, the, the issue here is not ethnicity. The issue here is not the relative likability of a people distinct from the Israelites. The issue is worship. The, the problem here is worship. These people do not worship the one true God. These people worship demons and idols and false gods and deities of all sorts, and they have all kinds of ways of doing that. And the Lord says, look, if you're going to live in this land and you're going to be faithful to me, which is part of this covenant relationship we have, then, then these people have to go. They have to go. You can't live with them, and they're not going to walk away on their own volition. You've got to get rid of them. They must be destroyed. And so we hear that, and we, we really we think about, in terms of individuals, and we think about, about people, but I want you, I want you to, to set that aside for a second and think about really what is more at stake here, the bigger issue here, which is that God's glory and holiness, that is at stake. These are his people. They represent him in the world. 
if they don't worship him rightly, if, if, if they worship him with sort of the, the I'll do it this way, and I, you know, maybe we can have a temple prostitute here, or that, that's not bad, you know, maybe we can do this. You know, if, if, we, if we merge our worship with the, the ways that others have worshiped gods who are no gods at all, then whose people will we be? And whose land is this? It's certainly not, not the land of God's people. That, that's who he's reserved this for, and we're going to be kicked out too. It's about worship. That, that's the central idea here. But there, but there are other things that, that correlate to that. And so if you look at verses 6 through 11, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. I love this. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were actually the fewest of all peoples. It's because the Lord loves you. I mean, isn't that good? It's because the Lord loves you. Not even because you love the Lord. It's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers the, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. It, it, God wants them to cleanse this land of, of those who do not worship him rightly and of those who are opposed to him in unholiness because he wants to preserve his people in holiness. It's central that they worship him rightly, but, but it's also critical that they be holy that they be set apart, that they observe all the ways and means that the Lord has given them through his law to be more like him. And, and then thirdly, God doesn't want them to have a covenant or show mercy or intermarry even with these squatters in the promised land. God doesn't want that at all in order to prevent Israel's own devotion to destruction. Remember I said he's, he's equal opportunity, <laughs> When, when it comes to this. And so we get a clear picture of this in, in uh, verses 25 and 26. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. Fire again. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. You shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. The, the fear that Moses is trying to instill in his people as he sends them into the land that, that the Lord has promised them. His fear is that if they go in and they don't care about the sin of the nations around them and they're not bothered by the way these other peoples worship false gods or, or maybe even try to tempt them to worship the one true God in a false way, he says, no, if you allow that to coexist with you, you yourselves will become just like them. Not only in your lostness, not only in, in, in God's sight, seeing you as worthy of wrath and destruction, you yourselves will become um, objects devoted to destruction. People, a nation, devoted to destruction. 
I, want you to, I just want you to feel the weight of that. I don't think we, we do all the time when we come to these texts. We just go straight to the heart and say, oh, but you know, but these are people, and you know, how could God destroy them and wipe them out? What's God's problem? Why is, why is He so wrathful and vengeful? No, 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 no. That's not it. The issue here is, is worship. The issue here is God's holiness and His vindication in the world through His people. That they would be holy too. Deuteronomy 20, 10 through 18. I'm not going to read it all. It, it gives us, actually, it, it's just, it's great. I mean, reading the Old Testament is really rewarding, uh, and especially Deuteronomy, because it just sets up everything else that comes after. You can read with a lot more um, awareness the rest of the Old Testament if, you, if you've got a decent knowledge of Deuteronomy. And this is what I mean. So Deuteronomy chapter 20 10 through 18, it lays out two battle plans, uh, two, two courses of action that you can take with your enemies if you are God's people. The first, and this is elaborated on in verses 10 through 15, the first, uh, it, it, it can involve treaties. It, it can involve uh, the spoils of war. The first option ha has to do primarily with enemy combatants who are outside of the promised land, those who are far off. These people aren't a threat to your way of life. They're not a threat to the, to the integrity of God's promised place for his promised people with his promised holy presence. The, uh, the people outside of those bounds, they're not a threat to that. And so when you go off to war, when you fight them for whatever reason, uh, yeah, destroy all the men there, right? Destroy all the soldiers. But you know what? You can take their wives. You can take their kids. You can take all their sheep and their goats. Bring them back with you, right? Why, why let this stuff go to waste? But then the second half of that, in, in verses 6 through, uh, or 16 through 18, yeah, um, the, uh, the, the promised land warfare changes. And I, I will read this. So Deuteronomy 20, 16 through 18. In the cities of these peoples, that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, right? So now we're in the promised land. This is what we're talking about. You shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, right? There it is again, devoted to destruction. And, and he lists off the names. These are familiar to us now. As the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. It's in, their, it's in their law. It's in their constitution. We, this is how we fight people in their promised land, is we devote them to complete destruction. Take no prisoners. The holiness of God is at stake. The integrity of God's place for his people is at stake. They're, they're, we cannot take chances. We must be faithful. We must be holy. So now we get to Joshua 6 which is probably what most people think about when they consider um, this, this idea of, of genocide and, and God's justice uh, to, to, to wipe out a whole people. If you remember, Je Jericho is, is what's recounted here in chapter 6. And, and Jericho is the first major battle of God's people as they're getting ready to enter the promised land. They've been wandering the wilderness for years. They've seen no hope in sight, no end in sight. But then... 
right at the end of the 40 years, Moses says, all right, it's time to go. He commissions Joshua with the task of leading the people in, in battle, uh, in, in actual battle into the promised land. I mean, we think about Moses, or we think about, yeah, we think about Moses sometimes as, as the, the, the Charlton Heston type, you know, gray hair and, and, uh, and well, you know, maybe, maybe some coloring here around the beard, right? Uh, but, you know, he's got the Ten Commandments. No, he doesn't have the Ten Commandments. That's Moses. Um, but, you know, Abraham is, he's old, he's frail, or Moses is old and frail. I'm mess, mixing stories here. Forget it. He's old and he's frail. He's hardly a warrior. And even when we think about Joshua, you know, our, our mentality, that's the name of a book. He's the leader of God's people Israel and, and whatever. Moses is, he is like, uh, excuse me, Joshua, he's a warrior that God has commissioned to break into the promised land and take it. All right, I mean, there, there's, there's, there's some, some adrenaline pumping here when we get to this chapter. And, and so they, they do their thing. They, they go around the, the walls of Jericho. They blow their trumpets, you know, and they're supposed to, they're supposed to shout at the end, and the, and the walls will come down. But I want to read for you how it, how it shakes out. So if you turn to chapter 6 of Joshua, and we're just going to read verses 15 through 25. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. At the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is within it shall be what? Devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. Lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold, every vessel of bronze and iron, are holy to the Lord. They'll go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. But that's not enough. More has to happen. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction. Both men and women, young and old, Oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And, and this was acceptable in this circumstance. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua, saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So you, you notice that phrase, though, that key phrase, devoted to destruction, devoted to destruction a thing devoted, or, or something to be destroyed. We saw that again and again. We saw it in verses 17 and 21. It's, it's spoken of the city of Jericho itself. The city is to be devoted to destruction. We saw it in verse 18. Not just the city, but the things in it. And, and, and by extension, the, the, 
the people in it, uh, the animals in it, everything in it. It's not just the walls. It's not just the roads or the infrastructure. It is everything. It's to be devoted to destruction. And, and, and of course, there's this warning there again that if you take any of these things that are intended to be devoted to destruction and you keep them for yourself, uh, you yourselves will be devoted to destruction. Uh, that's in verse 18. Incidentally, uh, in the very next chapter, what do you imagine happens? Somebody got greedy. Somebody took him a little something that was supposed to be devoted to destruction. And he hid it in his tent, and he thought nobody would find out or be troubled by it at all. Um, what has God said will happen if that goes down? You will be devoted to destruction, right? You guys catch on. Okay, you'd be better Israelites than the Israelites were. All right, so, so let's look at that then. In, in Joshua chapter 7, uh, if you look at verse 12, for example, uh, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. At this point, they go out to, to fight, but they lose the battle. And Joshua's freaking out. He's panicking. He doesn't know what's going on. And he, he cries out to the Lord. Uh, or the Lord, and then the Lord answers him and says, The people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. Um, they turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. <coughs> I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Did you I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Uh, fighting with the, the citizens of Jericho, I hope you see, uh, th this is about as impersonal as it gets uh, of a rift between two nations. At the end of the day, the Israelites are having to say, okay, do we want the Lord to be with us or not? And the Lord requires holiness. The Lord requires his people uh, to, to, to follow him, to obey his commands. And here's a perfect example of when they did not, of when they allowed even a hint of unholiness in their camp. The Lord threatens to leave altogether. And, and so Joshua, he, he sets out to find this guy. And, and so then in, in, um, in verses 24 through 26, Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold. These are the things that he had confiscated and his sons and daughters, and his oxen and donkeys and sheep, and his tent and all that he had, right? This man is being devoted to destruction. They brought them up to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And they burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger, his burning anger. To this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor, which means the Valley of Trouble. Um, so what happens when you allow even a hint of unholiness in the camp? Destruction. Um, let's, not, let's not read these stories as though God is just on the side of his people simply because. If, if anything, the Lord, he, he sides with his people, not for their sake, but for his name's sake for the sake of his holiness. Um, and he's, he's that way today. 
his relationship with his people is the same today. Though there are some differences. You notice maybe, perhaps, that there's one person of the citizens of Jericho who, who makes it out alive. And her name's Rahab. She was a prostitute. So on top of being a faithless Jericho pagan, she is actually a prostitute. I mean, she, is, she, she could not be any further from the ideal Israelite, right? This is the, ex- I mean, 180 degrees opposite direction of what God intends for his people. And yet she's spared. She herself is not devoted to destruction. And you wonder why that is? Joshua, the, this, this text, that gives us the reason a couple times. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's interesting. It says that she should be saved, spared, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. So if you remember, and, and earlier in Joshua, we see this story play out. Uh, they send spies to go scope it out. And, and because jo- Jericho had this huge wall, It was a big deal to be able to get into the city and kind of find your way around. But not only was the wall itself a big barrier, the wall is where people lived. Especially if you were like a prostitute, you you lived in the wall. And and so Rahab lives there, and she spots the spies, and and she brings them into her home to give them shelter. Why would she do that? They even explain to her, they say, look, This place is about to go up in flames. God is devoting this place to destruction. And and she could have done any number of things. She could have reported these spies. She could have found a way maybe to kill them. She could have done something. But she actually believed what they said. I mean, bear in mind, she's living inside a wall. Those kind of walls aren't easily penetrable. This isn't Jenga. You don't pull out a brick and it all falls down. I mean, where she's living is a place of real security. But she chooses to believe these spies. She chooses to believe in what God has told them. And by extension, what God has told her. She lives by faith. She walks by faith in the word of God. And she saves God's people. She participates willingly with God's people. She commits treason so that she can actually be counted among God's people. And that's what happens. The Lord sees it. He knows. And he regards that favorably. Not because she's great and, 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 and a model citizen. She's a prostitute, right? But because she's walking by faith. Not in her pagan gods, She's walking by faith in the one true God of Israel that she's just met. And she's saved. She's considered worthy uh, of mercy in the face of judgment, of certain destruction. Um, As Joshua, as the book progresses, I'm not going to get into this, You see that this is really actually the high point of their conquest of Canaan. It actually doesn't get any better from here. In fact, the further along they go, not because of Joshua's fault. Joshua's a great guy. He's committed to destroying everyone in their path, and he does it as best he can. But but as things go along, as they divvy up the land, as the tribes spread out and take over their own neighborhoods, uh, they they start to get comfortable with the people in the land. It starts out in in chapter 9. Uh, this people there uh, de- deceives the Israelites and convinces the Israelites that they actually don't live in the promised land, but that they're just kind of passing through. Please don't kill us. 
and we'll make a covenant with you. How about that? And the Israelites said, ah, sure. Um, but they kind of foolishly didn't really check to see if maybe they did live in the area, and it turns out they did. Uh, so they are, now they're in a covenant with this people who are, are, God has told them they should destroy, but because they're in a covenant with them, and because the Lord honors promises and oaths made between people and doesn't want his people to be oath breakers, they can't do anything about it. The Gibeonites hang out. And, and that's just the beginning. Uh, in, in every other place, there's, there's always a little vestige of Canaanite, pagan idolatry wherever you go and and the lord told them when they set foot in the land if you don't wipe it out you will be dragged down with them and and that's what happens i hope hope you've read the rest of the old testament that's where it goes by the end of this thing there's so much like the pagans there's so much like the canaanites that that the prophets themselves say man you know what the canaanites were actually way more righteous than you guys are god's going to kick you out he's going to vomit you out of the land and that's what happens. We, we see a really clear picture of this, like in, in 1 Samuel, when the king, the, Saul, the first king of Israel, uh, even he can't wipe out, he can't devote to destruction totally his enemies. And, and that's the reason why God removes him from the kingdom, or the kingship, and, and puts David in his place. All right, so what are some implications for today? Um, I think the first and, the, and the, the biggest implication here is God's holiness. Not just God's holiness as such, like in himself, but, but his holiness displayed through his people. 1 Peter 2, it speaks to this. You go to 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. You are a chosen race. This is, a, this is familiar language. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, out of Egypt, into his marvelous light, into this land flowing with milk and honey. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, right? But now you have received mercy. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And one thing that, that has changed between the old covenant and the new is that God's people aren't marked off by geography anymore getting a bit ahead of myself. They're, they're not marked off by where we live. You know, if, if you really want to read the Old Testament literally, please don't kill all your neighbors, right? Um, the New Covenant calls us to something different. It calls us to, to, to reflect God's holiness in the world, but, but now, because we have the Spirit living in us, because of the work of Christ, these outside influences, they're not what make us unclean anymore. Instead, God's people are put out, sent out deliberately into the pagan world as witnesses for his holiness, as representatives of who he is and of what he's done in Christ. This is what Peter's getting at here, and it starts with the holiness of God's people. It was important to the Israelites, and it should be important to us today. Holiness is something that I think we, we tend to just 
brushed under the rug because we're so caught up in grace. You know, God has mercy on us that he would be so merciful and kind and save us. I didn't deserve it. I can't do anything to earn it. And all that is true. But it was, it was true of the Israelites too. It was true of Abraham as well. They were called, not because of anything in themselves, but because of God's mercy. And as a result, they, they were told to be holy as he is holy. Now, they didn't have the means, they didn't have the resource that we have today in the Holy Spirit. They didn't have the full revelation of God's word like we have to know the mind of the Lord. But you see, the, that actually does not let us off the hook, right? If anything, we, we are even more without excuse. Um, when, when we consider holiness just a side project for people who really love God, but for those who, who know him, eh, you know, why are we quibbling over some of this stuff? Aren't we being a bit legalistic? I think when we read about being devoted to destruction and, and God's wrath, his just wrath on people who are opposed to him, and God's determination to eradicate all forms, all vestiges of unholiness in his people, I think it should cause us to, to pause and to reflect on how much we value holiness in ourselves and in the corporate body of the church. How much do we value and spur one another on toward holiness, towards obedience? Another implication today is, uh, is God's sovereign mercy, and, and I think that this is, is very clear um, we see God's patience toward his enemies. You know, that, that he would wait so long for the sin of the Amorites even to reach fruition. We see God's protection of his people. Um, it's not because they're more numerous that they're able to wipe out the unholiness rampant in the land. It, it's because the Lord is faithful to them. And because the Lord is powerful. Because he goes before them. Because he wants holiness for them more than they want it for themselves. Because he wants them to inherit the promises he has for them more than they want it for themselves. The Lord is for his people, and he's for us as well, and, and that's a tremendous encouragement because he can do whatever he wants. He has all power, right? And in Christ, he's given us all things. I think another implication is God's just judgment. Um... You know, as, as terrifying as, as Jericho, for example, is, as, as, as horrifying, maybe as, uh, you know, as unpalatable to our culture as it is, it's really only the tip of the spear um, of what God truly has in store for those who are his enemies. And we don't talk about that a lot. And I'm not saying it should be something that we bring up all the time and rah-rah about. But, but I think we, 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 we tend to just kind of avoid it because it's just not really something people like to hear. But I, I imagine the, the Canaanites probably have something to say about that, though. Wouldn't you think? I think the, the citizens of Jericho uh, are, are maybe saying to themselves, you know, maybe holiness, maybe that God really was pretty serious about that. And the thing is, that's just, that's just an example well, one of the things that uh, it, it, you see come up again and again and throughout the Bible, especially the Old Testament, is, is this idea that, that in moments like this, like in Jericho, when God's wrath is on full display, or like Sodom and Gomorrah, 
And God's wrath is just on display. We get the impression, especially as we then continue into the New Testament and, and into Revelation, um, we get the impression that, that these, these moments are, are like the curtain being pulled back just a little bit. It, it's like eternity entering into this time and place just for the moment. And, and, and the eternal reality setting in just for a moment. When we read about the when we read about Jericho, when we read about the conquest of Canaan, one of the things that we need to remember um, it, is that apart from the blood of Christ, we too are devoted to destruction. And our destruction is not just a temporal loss of, of a city. Maybe we, we just get burned up in flames. No, our, our destruction is eternal. And it's real. It's infinitely greater than, than anything, anything that Joshua chapter 6 has to say. Um, Malachi 4, 5 through 6. These are the last words of the Old Testament. Um, I think it's, it's, it's telling. Malachi 4, 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Malachi saw it then, too. This type of warfare is, is, is a sample. It's a shadow of what God has in store for his enemies. It should be terrifying if you're one of his enemies. It should spur us to, to ask ourselves, do I, do I know the Lord? Am I holy as he is holy? And, and hopefully you answer that question and go, well, I'm not perfect, right? Um, that's not what I'm saying. In Christ, we can actually be set apart for the Lord. In Christ, we, we actually are seen as righteous because of his work for us. And so we have escaped, but nevertheless, God's just judgment is real. And, and not only that, it's a reminder of who our true enemies are. Ephesians 6, 12 says that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, um, but with the authorities, the rulers of this present age. And, and, and that's, that was true of God's people then, um, although they had a more physical form from time to time. Um, but today, our enemies are not other people. Um, in, in a worldly sense, maybe those who are opposed to God are opposed to us. Um, but, but truthfully, our, our enemies are... Um, spiritual in nature. Um, the spirit of antichrist. Uh, it's, it's not just a person. It, it's, it's a spirit. It's, it's a guiding principle. It's an ethos. And that's what we're up against. Finally, um, Joshua 6, Deuteronomy 7. These are shadows of things to come. If you read Hebrews 10 and 11, um, you, get a, you read the whole book, you get a great picture of, of just how much the Old Testament, the law, God's, God's uh, demand for holiness from his people, you see how all of that points ahead towards something greater and more fully realized in Christ. I'd encourage you to read those passages. Um, but I think it's important to remember then that, that these promises that God has given, uh, the promises for his people in, in this new covenant with Christ, ratified by his blood, um, the, our promises, they're not limited to geography, right? Our inheritance is not a few square miles 
of desert. Our inheritance is the world. Our inheritance, if we're in Christ, is all things. The Gaza Strip is, it, 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 it is, it is such a small foreshadowing of all that God has for his people. Um, we, we know from 1 Corinthians 3 that, uh, that we are Christ's and that Christ possesses everything. And so, therefore, all things are ours as well. We know from Revelation, uh, we, we see not the earthly Jerusalem being resurrected and made prettier. No, we see a heavenly Jerusalem coming down and dominating this whole world. That's, that's what awaits us. Uh, it's not geography, as if we need to eradicate the sinful from among us uh, in order for us to have a certain area that's ours, that's devoted to the Lord. No, the Lord is doing it. He's bringing it about. Our pro the promises that we have are not limited to Abraham's descendants either. You know, when the Israelites stormed into Jericho, uh, their, their, their sights were very straight ahead. They had a land to inherit. They had the presence of God to dwell with them. Uh, literally, right? The Ark of the Covenant. Um, but we, we have the presence of the Lord within us. Uh, we, we, we are temples of God, each one of us. Together, the church is being built up as a temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and it's not just for God's it's not just for Abraham's physical descendants. It is for all those who are descendants of Abraham by faith. And so, yes, even the Canaanites can participate in this new covenant if, like Rahab, they participate by faith. And, and then finally, um, this is a shadow of things to come in the sense that our conquering Savior is greater than Joshua ever dreamed of. Joshua goes in and he, he wipes out pockets of unholiness. He wipes out pockets of God's enemies. But Jesus is, well, he makes us, first of all, more than conquerors, according to Romans 8.37. And it's only possible for him to do that because he himself is the supreme conqueror. So 1 Corinthians 15.20-28, and we'll be done. Um, it says this. Listen to these words. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. As by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjected, subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Amen. Right? Because... Because Joshua, as great a hero as he is, he is only a type. He is only a shadow of the work that Christ does in his people. Joshua died, and his people failed to eradicate 
um, the, the Canaanites and, and the pagans from their land. They failed. And it ended up costing them. They got kicked out of the land. But you know what? In Christ, there's no risk of that happening. Christ will fully purify and cleanse his people. He's prepared a place for us, and he will bring us there. And you know who won't be there? The Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites. All, all those who do not have their hope in him will not be there. And, and there will not be any more time where we, where we wrestle with temptation and where we, we ourselves um, battle against unholiness even here in our own hearts. That, that will be over. And, and the Lord will be all in all, which has always been his vision, that he would be the center, that he would be the focal point of his people, um, and that they would be holy as he is holy. All right. Uh, we've, we've got maybe a, a little, that's 745. I don't want to go too long. Brad, give me a north-south if we can keep going a little bit for questions, or if anyone wants to hang around after, we can do that. One or two? All right. If you need to go and grab your kids, please do that. Don't feel like, uh, you know, you're uh, being held hostage here. Um, yeah, we got a question over here. Steven, I think he's got a microphone, maybe. Awesome. Hey, Robert. Yeah. Uh, we talked about God's promise to Abraham and the covenant he made having the, the three parts of creating a people through Abraham and giving him a specific land and a place to be his home mm -hmm. and his presence being with his people. And in the New Testament, we've seen, I think, my understanding, a change in all three of those aspects of that promise. Sure. As far as uh, the people that now include the Gentiles and a place that isn't necessarily, is a, is a new heaven and a presence that's the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Is the, can, can you talk for a minute about the, the change in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and how all that wraps together and kind of completes? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I think uh, just a helpful rule of thumb when you consider how God dealt, has dealt with his people through the, the ages it's just helpful to realize that nothing, nothing really ever changes um, so much as it is more fully revealed, um, more fully developed, right? So, I mean, you, you, you look all the way back at, uh, at Abraham, you know, and, and the promise was for uh, his descendants. But then Paul in Romans, he, he, he makes this elaborate argument that is really just so, it's so painfully there, you know, you're like, how did we miss it? You know, but Paul says, no. The people who are truly of Abraham are of Abraham by faith. He says, no, Abraham did not receive circumcision before being counted righteous. Circumcision was a sign and a seal that he was righteous by faith because he believed and it was credited to him as righteousness in chapter 12 of Genesis. And chapter 17 is when he gets this sign, this seal, this act of obedience to be done um, to show who he is. And, 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 and it's stuff like that. It's just as, as things develop, um, God becomes, um, he reveals more and more of himself to his people. So it's not like, and this is important, it's not like God tried this thing with Moses and it just didn't work and uh, we'll scrap that, let's try plan B. No, God has always saved his people through Jesus. He's always saved his people through Jesus. Um, through, by faith, that they, that they put their hope in Emmanuel, God with us. That's the central aspect of it, that God is present. His presence is with his people. 
Um, you know, it was true in the Mosaic Covenant where we see uh, the, the, the flames in the middle of the ark. Um, and to an extent, it's, it's true um, with, uh, uh, with like the covenant God makes with David. Not just that the ark is still present because for a little while, right, it's gone. Um, but that, that the king is meant to be um, acting as God's representative among his people. And in all these ways, Jesus is he's just better. So that when we finally get to Jesus, there's just no question. There's no more wondering, you know, is there going to be another iteration of this? No, there won't be. There's, just, there will not, there's no need. Jesus is it. All of this has been pointing to him the whole time. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Is that helpful? And, and, you know, there's so much more you could say about that, right? I mean, there's so many books that you could find that, that would help you on that. I'd be glad to talk more about that. And one more question. Uh, I know we're going way over here. Right there, Will. Hey, Robert, you may have an, uh, answered this already, but the nation of Israel and them holding on to that land and, you know, all the politics that go with the U.S. backing them to help secure and stay in that land realizing they don't know who Christ is, they're still waiting for Christ to come. Are we spinning our wheels because we don't, in Christ, we don't have any geography, geographical boundaries, but are we spinning our wheels with them holding on to that land based off Old Testament covenants? Where, where does that fall? <laughs> I know that's, yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's a big one. Uh, that's a big discussion. And I'll tell you, I'll go ahead and tell you that we actually did a midweek fellowship series on um, like end time stuff, and among the questions asked, we, we've talked, actually, I think maybe even a couple times, about um, uh, church's relationship to Israel, uh, is Israel, the, the, like the true Israel of God, what, what does that mean, what, what are the implications as far as a physical dwelling place, a physical land? Um, I, I, don't, I don't really, I, I don't think it'd be very helpful for me to get into those weeds right now, but I can point you to the dire in the direction of those resources uh, if you come find me. Um, but I, I, I will say this, that, um, you know, if, if our only hope for God's people is, is a strip of land in the Middle East, um, then I think, we, I think we're missing the point. If, that's, if, that's, if that is the key for everything for us. Uh, I, you know, I could see, I mean, I get how that's an important question. It's something we need to, we need to think about and address. Um, but if that becomes the crux uh, of everything for us, I think we're missing the point. Um, because the Lord has a heavenly Jerusalem awaiting his people. Uh, I think that's a little bit different and better. Um, all right, well, let me pray for us, and then uh, I'll stick around. Brad will be around. Um, and we'll be glad to answer any other questions you might have. Uh, well, let, me, let me just pray. God, thank you so much for this time together. Thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for the, the texture and the richness of the Old Testament in particular, uh, and how the Old Testament is not... Um, it's not relegated to the sidelines of your revelation of who you are and of what you expect of your people. You are always holy, and you have always wanted to set aside in holiness a people for yourself. And in Christ, you have, you have done that fully and finally. So help us to walk uh, as, as witnesses of your faithfulness, as, as living trophies of your grace and of your goodness. Help us to um, ha have a sense of urgency in our dealings with other people knowing that all who are opposed to you will be devoted to destruction. Help us to have sober thoughts about that. For ourselves, for those we love, for those we don't know, for the people that we just don't like, help us to recall and to remember. Unless you've called us to go out into the nations, to be a blessing. That's always been part of your plan. So I pray that we would be vessels of your grace and of your mercy, which you offer through Jesus. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.